When Martin Luther King Jr. was fighting against the evils and the injustices of segregation and Jim Crow in the 1960s, Dr. King often expressed his greatest frustrations and his greatest anger and his harshest rebukes, not for the seething at the mouth racists who wanted him dead, the KKK, the white citizens councils or whatnot. Dr. King left his most stinging criticisms toward the white Christian moderates and especially pastors who he said knew better. You can read his remarks in the letter from a Birmingham jail. But Dr. King was most frustrated by white, moderate Christians who knew better. Those who would admit that Jim Crow was unjust. Those who claimed that blacks were equal in the sight of God and under the law. But those who chose to remain silent because they wanted to maintain order or a shallow understanding of peace rather than take an actual stand for justice. And Dr. King gave his harshest rebukes for those who he said knew better, but did nothing because he feared what others might think. Now, we are coming to the end of our study of the life of Simon Peter, and today we're looking at Galatians chapter 2. And here in this passage, we see the Apostle Paul come into our, our story, and he harshly rebukes Peter for doing something in which he knew better. And in this story, Peter is discriminating against a group of people within the church because Peter feared what others might think if they saw him eating with them or hanging out with them. And Paul comes onto the scene and harshly rebukes Peter for this. And he calls Peter to something greater because he knew that Peter knew better. So let's look at Galatians chapter 2 to see what's going on here. The Apostle Paul tells us in verse 11, he says, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So those are fighting words. Because he stood condemned. See, these are strong words. What was, what was Peter doing that caused Paul to be so upset? Well, Paul explains in verse 12, he says, for before certain men came from James, meaning that they came from Jerusalem, where James was leading the church there, it says Peter was eating, before these guys from Jerusalem came into town, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was having a good time with all the non-Jewish people that were Christians. And, but then when the, the, the men from Jerusalem came, came to him, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, meaning the Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So here's what's happening here. Last week we saw that God gave Peter a vision to go and preach the gospel to non-Jewish people. Gentiles, if you're not familiar, if you haven't been around church, Gentile just means non-Jewish people. And God gave Peter a vision to preach the gospel to, to non-Jewish people, and he did. God, and God declared even that Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to be Christians. And this is a big deal, that God uses Peter to bring the gospel to the nations, to bring Jews and Gentiles, Romans, together into the family of God. And Peter, he, he sees these people come to know Jesus. They join the family of God. They join the church. And Peter becomes friends with all these guys. 
He's eating with them. He's learning their culture. They worship together. Peter was probably having a great time. He probably tried bacon for the first time in his life. And that's, an, that's a good experience for him probably. But then he's having this great time with all these Gentile Christians. He's, he's building these friendships. But then Peter's friends from Jerusalem show up. And they haven't had the experience that Peter has of seeing these people come to faith and enjoying their company. And know, They're still suspicious of these type of people. And so they come in, they come onto the scene, and the Gentile way of life seems weird to them. And they're a little nervous by the fact that Gentiles are in the church and things are starting to change. And these Gentiles aren't becoming like them, but rather they're worshiping Jesus in their own way and Peter gives in to peer pressure, and he backs away from the Gentiles. He stops eating with them, and he separates himself from them, and he moves tables. It's like when you're a kid in the lunchroom. Peter's having lunch with the Gentiles, and when the Judaizers show up, he stands up, and he moves tables, and now he's treating Gentiles as second-class Christians within the church, and now look at what Paul says in verse 14. It says, but when I saw that their conduct... Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, meaning I called Peter out in front of everyone. Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, though you are, and, and not act like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And Paul essentially says two very important things here. First, he says to Peter, uh, Peter, you know better than this. See, Paul saved very harsh words, and he rebuked Peter publicly. Not because Peter was this terror, like the worst racist out there. There were probably people that were far more critical of the Gentiles. But Paul called Peter out because Peter knew better. But secondly, Paul says that segregation and separation are incompatible with the gospel of Jesus. Peter says, or Paul says to Peter, Peter, your favoritism, your preference towards your own people, that's not a secondary matter. That is a gospel issue. You have deviated from the truth of the gospel. You have forgotten the gospel. You have deviated from it, and you need to repent and believe the gospel again and do what is right. And then Paul explains himself, and he explains what he means by the gospel and what the good news of Jesus really is. He says to Peter in verse 15, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul uses the word justified, this idea of justification, to describe the good news of the gospel of Jesus. He says, we are not justified through works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What is, what is justification? So, you might understand it this way. When you apply for a job, what are you doing? When you apply for a job, what you are trying to do is you are trying to justify yourself to whatever organization, to whatever firm, to whatever audition or whatever, you're trying to justify yourself to them that you are worthy to be considered for the job. 
So you send them a resume, you send them a portfolio, you send them a transcript, you send them references, you send them your LinkedIn profile, whatever. Any record that you have that you can show them that proves that you are worthy of, your, of their approval. You show them anything you can that justifies why you believe you are right for the job. And you are giving them a record of your achievements and you're trying to prove to them that you are worthy of their acceptance. You're trying to justify yourself to them. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, it's very easy for us to believe that we gain God's acceptance and God's approval in the same way that we would as if he were an employer, by proving to him that we're worthy. So we look for ways to justify ourselves. And so we, may, we, we might take things like our church attendance or our moral record, the fact that we haven't done these things or the fact that we've done these things. Or maybe we take our doctrinal beliefs. I believe the right things about God. And we use those as measuring sticks by which we believe God accepts us. And we believe that these are the things that make us justified before God. But the truth is, we stand condemned before God, separated from God, because of our sin. And the Bible teaches that there is nothing that we can do to justify ourselves. God is holy. And God demands a perfect record. And we cannot deliver on that. Like, you cannot deliver on a perfect record. You cannot be holy as God is holy. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. And he lived a perfect life, but he died in our place. He took on our sin, and he traded us his perfect life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A translation of that is that Jesus gave us his perfect life and we traded him our sin. And the gospel is that anyone who believes in Jesus for their justification is made acceptable to God, not on the basis of their record or their beliefs or their performance or their lineage or their, you know, their nationality or ethnicity, but based on the perfect record of Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You are not accepted by God because you are acceptable to him. You are accepted by God because Jesus Christ covered you with his blood and cleansed you with his resurrection. And now because of Jesus, Jesus' perfect righteousness is now given to you. And when God the judge and God the Father looks at you, he does not see all that you've done wrong. He sees all that Jesus has done right and says you're justified. Come on in. Welcome to my family. That's justification. Now, there are two things I want you to see from this passage, and these are things that Paul tried to show Peter. These are things that Paul tried to explain to Peter, and these are things I believe that if we want to experience the freedom of justification, we have to understand. And the first thing is this, the gospel frees us from the fear of others. 
How many of us live our lives? How many of us make so many of our decisions based on what other people will think about us? See, I think the big issue that Peter faced in this situation and throughout his life was the fear of what other people would think. Peter lived a life where he was just trying to impress people and he didn't want to be rejected by people. There was a part of him that he just did not ever want to experience rejection and he cared so much about what other people thought of him. This is why I believe he denied Jesus at the crucifixion. He was afraid of what the people around him might think if he was connected to this guy who was being crucified on a cross. And here he is in our story today. He's having a great time enjoying the company of these Gentiles. But then when his more influential and his more powerful and his more popular friends show up, he gets nervous and he backs away. And he does what he knows isn't right and he abandons people he loves because he's afraid of what the other people might think. And he's more concerned with keeping the peace than he is standing up for what is just and right and good and godly. But when you understand that you are justified by Christ, that ought to free you up from the fear of what other people think of you. Shouldn't it? I mean, shouldn't it? I mean, you are accepted by God. <laughs> Why should it matter what anyone else thinks? Shouldn't that give us more freedom than we live in? Shouldn't we experience more freedom in the truth that God has accepted us? Who cares what anybody else thinks? If everyone else rejects you, God, the creator and the sustainer of your bones and muscles and atoms and DNA strands loves you and accepts you and has given his son to redeem you. If God is for you, who cares if anyone else is against you? There's such freedom in knowing that, in knowing that you are accepted, in knowing that you are justified. You know, it's been several years since I watched American Idol. But I watched several seasons in the, in the first few years, and I remember in the, the way the contestants during their audition, do you remember how timid and nervous and, and just insecure they were in that audition? Uh, I, they, had a, they had a very rational fear of Simon Cowell, <laughs> you know, because he was brutal. And he was judging them. That was his job, was to judge and critique them. And he was harsh at it. And when they sang for him, you could tell that they were nervous and they were so concerned and they were shaking and they were so concerned about what Simon Cowell might say to them or say about them. And it didn't really get much better as they advanced through the competition. You would watch as these people, they're just like some kid from like Iowa, and then he would change the way he dressed, and he would change the way he carried himself, and he would change all these things about himself because he wanted to impress the judges. He wanted to impress the audience so that they would give him good feedback and that they would vote for him or whatever. And they would try to impress people, and every week you would see them, you know, after they would sing their song, they would just stand there like shell-shocked waiting for what the judges would say, and they were terrified because they were being judged. And they were trying to justify themselves week after week after week after week as to why they were worthy of good feedback and why they were worthy of the audience voting them on to the next week. 
Am I good enough? Do I measure up? What are people thinking of me? Am I acceptable? Those thoughts were rushing through their heads, and they were constantly trying to justify themselves. But then there was the finale, and there would be one person left standing when Ryan, smiley Ryan Seacrest, would announce the winner. And he would say, you know, this is your American idol. And in that moment, the judge's opinions didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter anymore. It didn't didn't matter because they had already won. The votes no longer mattered because they had already been crowned champion. The contestant in that moment is free from being judged. They don't have to justify themselves any longer because that declaration of victory over them was all the justification they needed. They stood before the judges as the American Idol, as the winner. They no no longer needed to prove themselves. And each finale would always end with one last performance. And that was when the winner would sing their hit single. But this time they weren't being judged. And the verdict had already been announced over them and they were already the winner and nothing can take that away. And so you would watch them as the credits would roll and as the confetti would fall from the rafters, they would sing that final song and they wouldn't, you could just see it in their face. They weren't, they weren't thinking about where they were standing and whether they were looking at the camera or whether they were crying or not. They were just, think, they were soaking in the moment of what it felt like to be declared victorious. And in that final song, they were no longer anxious, they were no longer striving for acceptance, but they were basking in the joy of having been accepted. That should be the life of a Christian. We have already been justified. We have already been declared acceptable by God himself. We are free. We don't have to be enslaved to the opinions of others and the fear of man. The only one whose approval of us really matters has already approved of us. And Peter knew this, but Peter forgot it. And when he forgot it, he fell back into trying to justify himself before others. And so he failed to do what was right, and he gave in to the fear of man. And he did what was wrong in the sight of God. See, the gospel frees us from the fear of man, but the gospel also frees us from pride and arrogance. C.S. Lewis said of pride, it is the essential vice, the utmost evil. Pride or arrogance is an ugly sin to have present in your life. And this is one of those Christian teachings that's kind of confusing to many people in our culture because in our culture, pride is seen as a virtue. It's it's something to be celebrated. Be proud. Be proud of yourself. And in some ways, pride can be virtuous. It can be a good thing. I'm proud of my children that are sitting back there. I'm proud of my daughters. I'm proud of my son. And in many ways, I'm proud of various accomplishments I've experienced in my life. How could that be a bad thing? Well, in the Bible, pride is described as a sin when you take something that is true about yourself whether it's an accomplishment or a personal characteristic or your nationality or whatever, something that you believe sets you apart from everyone else. And then you believe that that thing makes you more acceptable to the world or perhaps even to God. Or you just think that that makes you better than other people. And we tend to see that what we tend to do in our lives is we often put people in categories, don't we? Successful, unsuccessful, intelligent, unintelligent attractive or unattractive, physically fit or out of shape, uh, rich or poor, 
And often we, I mean, in New York, we do that by neighborhood. Like, oh, I live in this neighborhood, but oh, you live in that neighborhood. And often what we do is we take things that are true about ourselves and we elevate those to make ourselves feel important. And then we look at people in categories different from us and we go, oh, I'm better than you. And we look down on them. And when we look down on people because they are not like us, that is what the Bible means when it calls pride a sin. And this is what was happening with Peter and with the Judaizers. They separated the church of Jesus into two categories. They believed, hey, we're the Jewish Christians. We're the ones who loved Jesus first. But we live, and we also live a, a more upright lifestyle, and we come from a different lineage. And they were prideful in their heritage and their practices in the way they behaved. They probably even took pride in their oppression. Like, we're the ones that are oppressed. We've overcome so much. And here's all these Gentiles. They come in here thinking that they're just, they're so privileged and they're Gentiles and they think that they can come in and be a part of what we have struggled for and we can be a part, and, and, and that it's ours. And they don't know all the rules yet. They don't know what they can eat or what they can't eat. They haven't been circumcised and they need to learn their place before they can really be accepted and they need to prove themselves before they can have a place at the table in the church of Jesus. And Paul says to Peter, you've forgotten the gospel. If you would just remember the gospel, Paul says to Peter, you would remember that you are just as undeserving of any of the grace that God has given you as any of those Gentiles. Without Jesus, Peter, you would be nothing. You think you were justified by your Jewishness? No. So why are you so arrogant about it? Peter, the gospel should free you from pride, Paul said to him. And the same is true of you and me. When we look out at all the polarization that is happening in our country right now, it is easy to be prideful. Like, I'm confessing that to you. It is easy for me to be prideful when I watch the news, when I scroll your social media feeds, and I go, oh, those people just don't believe the right things, and I've got it the right way. It's easy for us to be very prideful in this particular moment in our nation. To think that we're on the right side of every single issue and to believe that somehow that makes us special or more special before God than the people who believe or think or act or look differently than we do. But as we're about to transition into a time of communion, what I want to encourage all of us to do is to remember the gospel and to remember that we have nothing to be prideful or arrogant about when we look at the cross of Jesus. Because at the cross, we see that the only way that we can be justified is for the perfect and innocent Jesus to take our sins, our failures, our shortcomings onto his shoulders And in order to make you acceptable to God, Jesus took your sins, faced your judgment, and died your death. But at the resurrection, he offered you his new life. And if you received this gift of justification that Jesus offers, not only are your sins forgiven, but you stand before God fully accepted, fully welcomed, as as if you have lived the life that Jesus lived. And how can you be prideful if this is what it took to save you. You see, how can you be prideful if this is what it took to save you? And why would you also, on the flip side, be afraid of what anyone thinks of you if God has accepted you in this way? You see, Peter knew better. He knew the beauty of his justification, but he forgot it. 
And he slipped into fearing what others thought of him, and he slipped into pride, and he lost sight of Jesus in the midst of all this. And Paul called him to repent and to believe the gospel again, and he did. And this is what Jesus is calling you and me to do today, to, and when we take the bread and the cup. He's calling us to take our pride and to take our fear and to throw them at the feet of Jesus and to receive the truth of the justification that Jesus provides for us through dying in our place and rising from the dead. So when you take the bread, the body broken for you, and when you take the cup, Christ's blood shed for you, what you are doing is you are again reminding yourself and again coming to consume the love of Jesus and remembering the very thing it took to redeem you and to justify you. And so today when we take communion, we're going back to the cross, we're remembering the gospel, and we are then reordering our lives again around the truth that we are justified by his broken body and his shed blood. So let me pray for you and then I'll encourage you to take the communion. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have justified us through Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because Jesus' death and because his resurrection, we can now stand before you justified and acceptable in your sight. Not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So we thank you for that this morning as we take his body and his blood. And it's in your name we pray.